What's up, Teaaholics? Welcome back to the Tea on Crime. It's your host, Britt. And I'm the co-host, Jessica, wife and true crime skeptic. Just as a reminder, before we get started, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply our own and are only presented to educate. We've linked the case sources in the episode notes below. This week, I'm telling you the story of Tracy Lynn Kirkpatrick. I can't wait for you to mess up Kirkpatrick. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know how many times that I sat and practiced that, like not trying to separate? Just so everybody knows, it is Kirk. Patrick. I mean, I could talk like Kirk Patrick, but I feel like there would be long pauses. I just think for you're you gonna to have edit a seizure, out. and it's gonna be like Kirkpatrick. <laughs> Words are hard. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy Lynn Kirkpatrick was born on June 9th, nineteen seventy one, to parents Bill and Diane. She was the third of four children. She had two sisters, Angie and Deonda, and one brother, Jack. Tracy was born in East Liverpool, Ohio, but the family would later relocate to Point of Rocks, Maryland. I thought it was pretty cool that there's a town called Point of Rocks. There's a lot of really cool towns in Maryland. We're going to have to go? No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Point of Rocks is a little town with a population at the time of less than a thousand people. It was the type of town that most people knew each other. No one ever worried about locking their doors and crime rarely happened. I just want to say that I feel like that comes up a lot in most of our cases. No one ever locked their door. I when I was just about to say it's always nobody ever locked their door and it's always a small, small town where everybody knows each other. Everything always happens in these small towns too, I feel so like. Note to the public, if you're in a small town, move. <laughs> Stay safe and lock your door. <laughs> Tracy is described as being funny and smart and she had quite a feisty attitude. That sounds like you. <laughs> I don't know whatever you mean. She had a love for all people, and her friends recall her constantly blasting the radio and her 10-year-old Pontiac Grand Prix, which she was so proud of herself for buying with her own money. Did you just say Grand Prix? Prix? Like a Grand Prix? Pri- okay. All right. Prix. Okay. Grand Prix. <laughs> Can you focus on something? It is too early in the episode to start Grand with. Prix. All right. Got it. How do you say it? Grand Prix. Pricks. Grand Prix. Oh, it's a Grand Prix. Yeah. Well, then they should spell it P-R-E-E, not P-R-I-X. You could see how people would get confused. No, I think that's just you, as in yourself only. <laughs> Tracy also had a, a reserved side to her and was known for being very shy until you got to know her. Overall, Tracy seems like she was a wonderful person and wanted to make sure that she was a friend to everyone and showed compassion anytime she had the chance. Tracy was 17 years old and was in her final year at Brunswick High School. She was an honor student with a GPA that averaged between 3.5 and 4.0. Her interest included writing and poetry, and she would often express how she was feeling through her work. The majority of her poems spoke of loneliness, and one of them was even published in the New American poetry anthology, which I thought was pretty cool. That is really great. Her dedication to her schoolwork came as no surprise to anyone that knew her. She had her entire life planned out. Upon graduation from high school, 
she had a hope of getting into accounting and attending St. Mary's University and going to law school. She was brilliant and driven, and she just wanted to keep giving back to the world. On March 15, 1989, Tracy went to work for a closing shift at the clothing store that she had worked for, but she never came home. Her murder scene was described as being violent and brutal. Tracy was stabbed to death in the storage room at her job. Oh. Yeah. We just kind of jumped right in there. Is this going to be graphic? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, just making sure. She was discovered by a mall security guard two hours later who found the store unlocked with all of the lights on. Nearly 30 years, and her case is still one of the most haunting cases that ever took place in Maryland. Three months after the discovery of her body, a man called into a private hotline and made an anonymous chilling confession. Now, I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but I am very familiar with this since I'm clearly very invested in true crime. Are you talking about this case in general? No, I'm talking about this hotline. Oh, so <laughs> I'm definitely <laughs> but not yes, familiar. in general. <laughs> I don't know. So from 1980 to 1995, there was a, a man named Alan Bridge, and he started a hotline if you will, and he called it Apology Line. He was also known as Mr. Apology. Interesting. Okay. People would call in and make confessions to things that they had done. Oh. Yeah. I've listened to some recordings that are out there from these callers that still remain anonymous to this day. Some of them include small petty crimes like stealing something from a store or taking something from a loved one, but you'd be surprised how many calls came in regarding something horrific that someone had done. Like murder or hit and runs where they were fully aware that they had hit another human being, but they decided to leave the bodies. Wow. No one would answer these phone calls. The number simply rang to a voicemail and Alan would listen to each killer's confession. Interesting. Right? So there's actually a really good podcast and it's called Apology Line. If you haven't listened to that, you definitely should because they actually play all of these calls really so you can hear the things that people talk about and it's insane that what it went on for so many years and that that was even Before a it, thing it even got shut down did they get right. shut down um so he actually ended up passing away and i honestly think that's why it stopped can you being imagine a thing? If something like that was still around now in this day and age with social media and wow i can't even imagine what that would be like right i feel like people would have horrible things to say but they would definitely be tracked and they were not back then that's right 1995. i just wanted to put that little explanation in there because when i read that a man had called in three months later after the murder of tracy I thought the timing was really interesting since this took place in 1989 and reports show that he made a confession on a hotline. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was Alan Bridges hotline they were referring to. Okay. They never did say which one it was, but I'm assuming due to the timeline, that's the one that it was. Okay. During the phone confession, the man called himself Don. He claimed to have murdered Tracy. That call would end up being tracked down to a town that wasn't far away from Tracy's. But once the investigators were able to identify the man, he had no interest in speaking to investigators. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> Some people believe this case was a random act of violence and Tracy was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But there are many people that believe this was an act of passion this is a disturbing case that provides little evidence and so many theories. Okay. On the night of March 15th, Tracy had been assigned the closing shift at the store. This was the first time she had ever closed by herself. The store's manager, as well as Tracy's mother, Diane, had stopped in the store at different points of the evening, just checking in. Okay. The store closed at 9 p.m., 
and it was 8.45 when Tracy was going to begin tallying up the day's receipts. Two hours later at 10.50 p.m., so almost two hours after the store should have been closed, Mm -hmm. a shopping mall security guard noticed that the lights were still on in the woman's clothing store. The front door was unlocked. The guard walked into the store and called out but didn't get a response. He made his way towards the back of the store and into the storage room. That's where he found Tracy's lifeless body on the floor. She had been stabbed multiple times in both the chest and the back. Drops of blood led down the hallway and towards the loading dock. The guard immediately notified police. At almost the same moment that all of this was happening, Tracy's parents, Bill and Diane, were on their way to the shopping mall. It was almost 11 o'clock, and it was later than uh, Tracy normally would return home. When they arrived, they were shocked to discover police cars surrounding the store. Bill and Diane got out of the car and told police that their daughter was inside. The police then told Diane that Tracy was dead. Diane was later treated at a hospital for shock. Oh, that's so sad. There was no apparent motive for Tracy's brutal murder. There were no signs of sexual assault. The cash receipts were still left untouched on the counter. There were no signs of forced entry. There was no money missing from the store. There was no indication that there was any kind of struggle. The only thing that seemed to be missing from the store was Tracy's purse. Police believed that the murderer had some, had to be someone that Tracy knew, mm-hmm. which I believe as well. Yeah. It seems like everything was nicely in place inside of the store for it to be someone she didn't know or someone that she didn't trust. Yeah. The crime scene never turned up any fingerprints and there was no physical evidence. The case just went cold. That's unfortunate. Right. But let's fast forward three months later in June of 1989 and the mysterious phone call that came through the hotline. In the phone call, the man says, hello, my name is Don. I'm calling from Frederick, Maryland. I know this is going to sound surprising, but three months ago, I stabbed a girl to death. Wait, is Frederick, Maryland where he's actually from? So Frederick is the town that is right next to Tracy's. But that's the town that he's from. Well, I mean... We don't know who Don is, so perhaps, or he's he's lying. Yeah. I'm setting myself up to be caught, but there are a lot of guys named Don in Frederick. That's probably why you think I'm making this tape. After receiving this confession, the hotline immediately notified the Frederick police, and I know I mentioned it earlier, but Frederick, like I just said, is the town that is directly next to where Tracy was living. Mm-hmm. The detective that listened to the tape, Barry Horner, said that he felt there was actual sincerity in the caller's voice and that the caller had direct knowledge of the crime. He became convinced that the killer, who called himself Don, was Tracy's killer. Barry Horner took the tape to his chief of police. At the end of the call, the caller can be heard saying, The girl I killed was working in a ladies sportswear store. I often came by and talked to her when she was working alone. One night, when she was in the storage room, we were talking, and our conversation turned into an argument. And so, I took out a knife that I have with me at all times, and I killed her. And uh, a few days later, I realized I had created a lot of sadness, and I thought about turning myself into the police. But whatever they do to me, that won't bring Tracy back. So I've decided I better keep free, because we have the death penalty in Maryland. Ah, thanks for listening. I'm sorry about what I did, but nothing can change it. Bye. Wow. Very intense, right? So obviously it is somebody that she knew. Right. And also, 
you know, I don't know if the police reported and maybe they did that she was found in the storage unit or in the storage room mm -hmm. of the of the workplace. So it seems like there's definitely some facts there that he knows. Yeah. The police were able to trace the call to a Safeway supermarket in Walkersville, Maryland, which is seven miles north of Frederick. Horner felt that if the caller was the killer, he wanted to be caught. And this is why he called into the hotline. Yeah. The police decided to compose a letter and address it to Don in the local newspaper on October 10th, 1989. Police received no response. With all of the dead ends that it seemed police were facing in this case, the Frederick police turned to a local media station for help. Several radio stations played the confession tape on air on the anniversary of the murder. Tracy's family believes that someone saw or heard something on the night of the murder. Mm -hmm. There had to be other shoppers around or someone leaving a nearby store. They can't believe that a murder could happen and no one would know anything about it. On March 20th, 1989, Tracy was laid to rest. The poem she once recited for her family was inscribed on her tombstone. Her family still to this day is offering a $5,000 cash reward for anyone leading to information or the arrest of her killer. One of the potential suspects is believed to be Don Barnes Jr., the security guard that found her body. Oh. His daughter allegedly claimed that he was abusive toward her and her mother, she also believes that he was involved in Tracy's murder and had over an hour to cover up the crime. Are you ready for the next piece of information? Yes. Don Barnes Jr.'s father was the police chief at the time of Tracy's murder, and some have suggested that he covered up evidence in the case. However, this has not been confirmed. Tracy's killer, still to this day, has yet to be identified or arrested. So I guess my question is... They have the tape, right, of this guy's voice. Why was it, I guess my question would be, was it ever compared to this guard's voice or? Well, I think it's safe to say that 100% everyone believes. I mean, his name is even Don, <laughs> you know, so I just think that the fact that his dad was the chief, the chief of police made it really difficult for anything to happen. And even now, I mean, can that be enough to convict someone of murder to be like, your voice sounds exactly the same as this guy? I don't think that that's enough evidence to say you're definitely the one. But I, I guess my thought would go to what if it is just some random person, right? And the most part of what he's stating is he knew her, they talked, they got into an argument, and he knew this guy was the son's, uh, the police chief's son, and he just kind of set things into motion right. to get people to look at this Don Barnes Jr. instead of in any other direction or any other suspect. Right. So. Uh, <laughs> it's a weird case, and the fact that it's still unsolved is very sad for her family. Yeah. Because, I mean, the security guard, you know, happened to walk in the store at such a convenient time was the one that found her body and it kind of seems like is the only one that could provide any kind of information as to really anything that happened that night because even now no one has come forward and just like her mom had stated before you know there has to be other people that saw something you know people outside shopping but again no witnesses have come forward and said yeah I saw this and it kind of looked unusual or brought anything up Maybe, honestly, nobody even heard anything because if it was somebody that she knew, she probably didn't have a lot of time to scream as it was happening. Right. So, and if it's in a storage closet, 
I can only imagine how the sound would not reverberate outwards. So, uh, well, and it kind of seems like he, you know, had gone into the store before, according to his confession on the hotline and mm-hmm. chatted with her multiple times. And of course, this happens to her on the night that she's alone for the first time doing a closing shift. And whether he knew that or didn't know that, or it was simply just an argument gone wrong. And then his first thought was to stab her multiple times. No, I don't I don't think it was just a random I think he was planning it obviously and I think he timed it well um but do I think that by him being with her and knowing that you know she was working at nighttime and that he would talk to her often then I would assume he would also know that this Don Barnes Jr. would also be doing his rounds and his shifts were around that time so right like I said it just kind of sets everything to spotlight this other guy so are you stating that you believe basically it could be someone else i mean basically saying like hey i knew the security guard was there i know his name i know his situation but i'm really the one that did it i'm just gonna say that my name was don is that what you're stating well yeah because possibly he did say i'm gonna i'm just gonna call myself don because there's a lot of dons and why else would you do that if you don't have some type of like vendetta, right? He's right. the son of a police chief. To me, it just it just seems like even with those facts, the community and other people are immediately gonna just spotlight this guy. Right. So what do you think? I guess let's go back here. What do you think about the fact that Don Barnes's own daughter allegedly claimed that, you know, he was abusive towards her as a little girl, towards her mother as well, and that she believes he was involved in Tracy's murder and that he would have had over an hour to cover up the crime. Do you think that that's just speculation on her part? No, I mean, you know, on the other side of the coin, right, if his dad's a police chief, then he obviously was raised um, understanding and knowing what his dad does, right, kind of what the the protocol would be to get away with the type of crime. Um, right. So I think it just, it just really depends on how you want to look at it, I guess. You bring such good points to the table, you know? I appreciate you listening to my stories. Thanks, one of us. Oh, okay. I think everyone else out there appreciates your views. I'm just here for the dad jokes, okay? Yeah, you're great at them. Well, that is a story of the murder and the unsolved case of Tracy Lynn Kirkpatrick. It's really sad, though, either way. It is really sad. As I said before, this case has a lot of theories that follow it, but hardly any evidence. I hate cold cases, and they are always really sad to report on because I wish that we had more information. If at all possible, there could be some kind of closure for the family. I mean, it's been a very long time since this happened, and the fact that her family is still to this day offering a cash reward, I don't know if anything's ever going to come of it, and I think that's something that they probably had to learn to accept in their yes. own way and realize that they're probably never going to get the uh, closure that they want. I think that's kind of the other downfall, right, of being in a small town with a small community is everybody does know each other. And I'm sure there are loyalties and everybody is not they're going to protect, you know, their group of people. Yeah. So like who they consider their people. Yeah. Well, and hopefully now in the small towns, we're locking our doors. If we've learned anything at all. Which is too bad. It is, definitely. All right, you guys, on to my favorite part of the episode. Here's this week's tea time. Oh, I can't wait. (laughs) 
In 2012, Michael Baker from Jenkins, Kentucky, made history in his own mind, but for all of the wrong reasons. After he siphoned gas from a local police car, he posed next to the car with a big smile on his face while he was also proudly giving the finger for the camera. He then posted the photo on Facebook. The photo went viral with thousands of views, but a couple of days later, the police knocked on his door and arrested him. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what he expected. I think every episode that we do this and we find more criminals like this, they get dumber, if at all possible. These are the stupidest ways to get caught. <laughs> do you want to hear my joke? I would love to. Okay. So the police just showed up at my house and arrested my bottle of water. They said... <laughs> He's wanted in three states. Do you know what states those are? Well, not Kentucky, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not Kentucky. What states? Solid, liquid, and gas. <laughs> You're welcome. I don't know where you find these, but they're fantastic. <laughs> I look forward to them every week. So before we end this episode, everybody, we wanted to announce that our podcast, The Tea on Crime, has now joined Patreon. For those of you that aren't familiar with what that is, it's a monthly subscription page platform that will be ad-free with bonus episodes that are exclusive only to our Patreon listeners. So go ahead and head on over to our page at patreon.com slash crime. So Patreon is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash crime to hear more tea being spilt by the both of us, but mostly Brittany. <laughs> uh, we're really excited to provide you with bonus content. And then, you know, as always, we sincerely appreciate all of your support. And like I said last week, you guys, if you haven't been over to Patreon yet, you really need to check it out. We have a case over there on Robert Wan. If you're not familiar with that one, it was definitely shocking for Jessica being the first time she was hearing it. I think it's shocking for most people. It is a bizarre case, and it is one you definitely want to listen to. Yes. That's it for today's episode. For all of our teaaholics that enjoyed our show today, please remember to go and rate the show on whatever platform you are listening to. Give us a follow on Facebook at Tea on Crime Podcast, Instagram at Tea on Crime Podcast, Twitter at Tion Crime Pod. We're also on TikTok. I don't know why I have such a hard time remembering that one. We are on TikTok at Tion Crime Podcast as well if you want to go and follow us there. Please. I'm your host, Britt. And I'm your co-host, Jessica. And we will be back next week to serve you more tea on all things true crime. Bye.